All right, well, uh, good morning. My name is Sam, and one of the pastors here. Uh, just a FYI, there's a bunch of stuff on the back table. I don't remember if Chris said this, but uh, we just began a new series uh, on the book of James. We basically go straight through books of the Bible in our church and go verse by verse, and I got through one whole verse last week. It was amazing. Um, but uh, all our sermons that we've ever preached really are uh, online, so you can uh, take a look at those on our website. But well, we decided to do something a little bit different this series, and uh, basically created a, I created a study guide with a little bit of commentary. It has the verses, some commentary to explain some things I might not go over in the sermon. And uh, then it has some personal application questions if you really want to feel God uh, convicting you, because basically these are the things that I thought about myself, and then I got to you know, write them in here and let other people think about them. And then there's some family discussion questions um, that uh, you can, you know, I, basically we're here to equip people. Specifically, we have a lot of kids in here. We want to equip parents to have discussions with their kids, so you don't have an excuse. And uh, some of these are really easy to understand, like the questions for younger kids, and some are um, either... Though they're simple, they can uh, help older kids maybe have some really good discussions. So they're free. I don't know how many are left. We'll print more if they're all gone by today. We only printed like 50 of them. So um, that's for you, and I hope you uh, enjoy it and take it. Um, We just got back from a men's retreat, as Chris said, so I was wiped out. I wrote a sermon early in the week because I had to basically write another one uh, for uh, the talk that we, we do at the men's retreat. And so I hadn't looked at my sermon for several days and uh, woke up this morning going, good night, I got no sleep, my feet were hanging off the end of these little bed, because when we got the men's retreat, it was at a girls' campfire, like campfire girls' scout type of deal, um, and when we got there, the first question they asked us was, so how many kids are you going to have? I was like, uh, none. So, and so then we uh, basically had a great time at the camp, but no sleep on little beds and um, but we had a great time, and I'm going to talk a lot about that, um, which providentially God just kind of made it work, because it's about the same things that, um, that I was going to preach on these first, uh, first verses here. So let's get right to it. Um, some of you know, some of you don't, that uh, I was an English teacher for many years, uh, for about 10 years, basically full-time for about eight and a half or so. Uh, and then part-time, uh, when I started the church, or when I, we planted the church, I should say, uh, I was in my seventh year, and then the eighth year I worked full-time, which was a complete blur at this point. I don't remember what happened. Um, luckily, I think I had a student teacher that year, so I was like, here, do all this stuff. Um, but the, uh, I was an English teacher, and I was, uh, for better or worse, I was a really hard English teacher. Um, I was the teacher that you either loved or you hated um, because I really refused to settle for the status quo. And when some people say that, they mean like they, they tested really hard and those types of things. But um, I was really pretty much against textbooks, never used it, hated it, actually would mock it most of the time. I didn't like pre-designed handouts, always would make my own if I used any. Um, I didn't really enjoy, and some of the guys heard this because I talked about this at the retreat, but I didn't like enjoy stuffing kids' heads just full of knowledge that they would regurgitate to me on some form of test. And this is probably because um, after a few years of teaching, um, and some of, for some of you thinking teaching high school students is like, you know, equal to like root canal work, but it was uh, such a joy. It was so fun. Um, but 
I quickly realized that everything that I taught the kids and that they would regurgitate, they would forget hours later. Um, they would not really remember uh, much of anything. And there was a quote I remember that said, uh, education is everything you remember after you forget everything you've learned. And that was very true because uh, I began to see the kids remembered very little of what I taught them or what I thought that they should learn. And so I saw student after student after student uh, receiving grades, uh, having their 4.0 that was so important to them, uh, some getting diplomas, uh, but still leaving fairly immature and uh, very much ill-prepared for the real world that we were teaching them to live in that they already actually lived in. Uh, which was somewhat ironic. But in truth, I found out that the kids that got the highest grades, uh, the kids that got the 4.0s and the, the high GPAs, um, weren't the ones who were actually necessarily the smartest or even the hardest workers. And uh, what I found out, and maybe you guys were some of these people, because I was like that, I breezed through high school. I thought it was a joke um, and got a 4.0, I think, for the school. And college was the same. I wasn't because I'm necessarily really smart, but because I learned the system. And I perfected the system. And that's what I found out a lot of kids were they learned the system very well. They learned the routines very well. And I saw kids expend much more energy and time and creativity on finding ways to circumvent the system and beat the system than they did actually in learning. And it was actually quite um, interesting. Uh, that's when iPods came out and things like that. And they had all kinds of ways of cheating. It was amazing. New ways of cheating that were incredible. Um, and I was fairly impressed as I failed them, but I always would tell them that, uh, I said, I'll never make an issue of you in the middle of class of like, you're cheating. I'll just give you a zero. And then later when you look at your grade, if you ever do, and you have that zero or you have that 3.9, why didn't you get a 4.0? I say, well, you got a zero there because you cheated. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Well, the discussion's over. There is no discussion, actually. You failed, and that's it. And so I was the teacher you hated but loved and, and so on. So I found out real quick that um, I didn't like the system, so I changed it. In fact, I threw it out altogether. And uh, I started locking my door. And uh, not, you know, kids, if kids came to class, I had a sign on my door. They came late, I said, just go to the principal. Because didn't, they didn't make it to class in time, and that was it. So I locked the door, and I would pretty much teach anything I wanted. And it was glorious, because... I should have gotten fired many times for some of the stuff that I taught. And uh, I took a lot of risks, and I, pre I taught a lot of things in class that I probably shouldn't have if we were going to say, what should you teach in class? Uh, but they were glorious and fun and enjoyable. And my methods were a bit unorthodox. And uh, I decided, like I said, to toss out the handbook and and the handouts and all that stuff, and I did away with traditional testing and really grades altogether. At least I didn't talk about them very much. And I began to focus more on the process than just the product that was being produced. Because I found out that lots of kids could make a test, and lots of kids could put a presentation together, especially with PowerPoint. It was like, ooh, PowerPoint. And it was like not impressive anymore. And so instead of novels, uh, I basically uh, rewrote the classes. And then I ended up creating brand new classes of which I would pitch to the uh, administration in such ways that made them sound really educational, but it was like, whatever. And they were uh, my grand experiments. And uh, it was somewhat like Frankenstein, because I was just putting together these things going, this would be cool, because it was just, I'm a very much a dynamic person, and I like change. I enjoy change. I enjoy things that make you uncomfortable. So I would come in, and like the chairs would be different, 
Sometimes there weren't chairs at all. I stack them in the back room. They're like, where do we sit? Stand, I don't know, floor, figure it out. And they'd be like, eh. and so they always would come in not knowing what I was going to do. It was never routine. There was no routines about what I did. And so instead of giving them tests, I put them in scenarios. Uh, I put them in groups. And uh, it was the most chaotic, terrible, wonderful thing I've ever done. Um, and it made me look brilliant because these kids were like going through these experiences and, and hating it and crying and fighting and like, oh, it was like glorious. And then at the same time, um, they were learning and they were growing in ways that they never would have expected. Um, I put basically what had happened, I would give kids about seven different projects over a semester and I would insert conflict intentionally and then walk away. It's like someone, you know, dropping a little bomb and then just kind of like going away and not dealing with it. And they would inquire, like, help, help me. Like, Lord, you're supposed to be the teacher. And they would ask me questions like, what do I do? And I would say, I don't know. What do you think you should do? And they'd be like, you're not answering the question. And I'm like, I thought I was, aren't I? You know, I just keep asking questions. And they just hated it. But they were putting groups, groups where they would grade each other, groups where they could fire and hire different people. And it got tense. And groups where you had to pick a leader and then you hated the leader, but the leader got like twice as much joy or or praise if they succeeded and then twice as bad of punishment if they failed. And so that was all kinds of things. I come in some days in the middle of a project and say, all the leaders stand up, rotate, there's your new groups. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because you had the leaders who were in control of everything because they were control freaks. And so they were like the 4.0 student that would do everything, right? They would go home like, don't worry about it, guys. I'll take care of it. We'll have a really great project. And they would come back with an amazing project, and no one else would argue with them. They're like, sweet. And so they would kick back. But then I would move that leader, and they're like, well, I'm taking my stuff. I was like, no, you're not. That belongs to the group. They're like, but I did all that work. I was like, no, your group did. But I did it. Well, you screwed up then, didn't you? Move on. And then the guy that wasn't doing anything, who was a terrible leader, comes in and is like, dude, look at my project. This is awesome. You know? And so it was conflict and tension. They're like, we hate you. This isn't fair. And I was like, what is fair? What do you mean by fair? And they started just getting angry. And I had kids hate my guts. I mean, they were angry. But by the time we got done, I felt like, and I think that they would agree, that they left smarter and wiser than they ever would have with a Scantron or, or whatever kind of test they gave them. And they had the scars to prove it. And they did some amazing things that they never thought that they were capable of. And so with this men's retreat that we did, um, we decided to do something similar to that uh, that was a little unorthodox. Um, and the reason why is because as you take the, our schooling, if you will, into the context of faith, I'm pretty convinced that most of us I say most of us, Christians, a lot of people who call themselves Christians, approach their faith like the average high school student probably approaches school. And I say that because they, the Christian enrolls, if you will, or believes, um, and then they learn the system. And they practice the routines, and they regurgitate a few right answers when they might be asked to. Um, and it's really all just to get the grade, whatever grade that they, they think that they should deserve. And... Some, uh, some people in their faith do just enough to pass, you know, in according to them. And some want the 4.0, right? They just, I want everyone to know that I got the 4.0, so my, you know, I get the accolades that go with that. And they grow older in, quote, faith, but they 
hardly mature spiritually at all. And I saw kids graduate with diplomas that didn't deserve them, but they got the grades. I saw kids that didn't get the grades who had learned a tremendous amount, but had failed a few things and made some mistakes. And so it's interesting that Paul writes a very powerful verse to us. We're getting to James, don't worry. But what Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians, this verse that I think, if you've ever read 2 Corinthians, particularly 13, you'll probably read this and keep reading really fast past it. Because it's uncomfortable if you sit on it. Here's what it says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Two words. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And I think that uh, if we start asking ourselves some questions like, how do you actually test yourself? I used to, or I have in the past, allowed students to make their own tests. And the first time you do that, if you really don't know what you're doing, it is the most futile exercise that occurs. Because what do they do? They make a test they can pass. Easy test. It's a perfect test. And quite frankly, when anyone is to follow, if they're to follow that verse about our faith, we only give tests to ourselves that we know we're going to pass. We create a rubric in our head. Well, reading the Bible this many times makes me spiritual. Praying this many times. Going to church sharing the gospel with these many people, and we have these tests that really are not difficult for us. And we pass them. But very rarely do we actually make a test for ourselves that we may not pass, or at least may not know the answer to, and we have to actually sit on and process and be uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever been in a test that's uncomfortable. I've been in one. The first, because tests were never that difficult for me in school, the first quarter of my Calculus 2 class in community college. I really don't know why I took calculus. I took it through high school, and I was good with math, and then I took it in college and barely passed Calculus 1. In Calculus 2, I basically spent the first week at IHOP eating the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity, and it was really good. But I didn't go to class at all, and I arrived on Friday for the first test, and I looked at the test and went, oh my gosh, and walked out and dropped the class and never took another math class again. The final of Calculus 1 class, I sat for two and a half hours not knowing what I was doing and still passed the class. I don't know how. Tests are difficult sometimes, but the tests we give us in faith, I don't think we ever give ourselves really hard questions like this. Do you, Sam, asking yourself, so don't say Sam, but you can, but fill in the blank. Do you depend on God for everything? You know, when no one's looking, when it's just you and the test, Do you depend on God for everything, knowing God's going to grade it? Do you really trust that God is in control right now? Do you really trust Him? Well, yeah, because things are comfortable. But when it gets painful, do you trust that God is loyal and keeps His promises? Do you believe that God is good? If God purposes all things for good for those who believe. Does that include evil? Is that one of all things that he's talking about? What am I scared to lose? I mean, those are the kind of questions you ask yourself that, like, we don't really want answers to, though. Yeah, we should. But we don't 
ask ourselves those. And so the men's retreat, I know how many people have been on men's retreat. Ladies, you've been on ladies' retreats, I'm sure. They're the same in all churches. It's kind of irritating. You go to an, a place, the guys are thinking we're going to basically have a, an experience, and that experience includes relaxing and getting away from the kids or the wife for two days. And in that time, I'm going to pretend that I'm a basketball player or a football player and, you know, run around, although I'm not that good, but I'm going to pretend like I am because that's what men do, I guess. Make grunting noises, drink lots of coffee and really bad camp food, make bodily noises, and that's pretty much what we do. Then we sit passively and we listen to a guy like me who goes and goes, yeah, you, you're a sinner and be a man and all this stuff. And we're like, cry a little bit, go play basketball, feel better, come back for another session. Yeah, you're terrible, love your wife, cry a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much what happens every time. And you leave with a little bit of a camp high, and you're like, oh, it's great. And it's like security at an airport after a terrorist attack. For two weeks, everybody's like, give me your tweezers, give me your toothpicks, and all that stuff. After two weeks, you're like, dude, that's a cool knife, go ahead. And you don't care, right? So that's what happens in a typical men's retreat. So as we approach the men's retreat this year, we're like, I don't want to do that. Tired of that. Been through that. So we decided to do things a little different. And we wanted to put these guys in a little bit of a trial, a little bit of a fire, start a fire underneath them and heat it up a little bit. And the reason why is because C.S. Lewis said an amazing thing, and he says a lot of amazing things that make you feel really dumb that you can't say them like this, but he says, C.S. Lewis says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so, through the story of this men's retreat that I'm going to tell you, which really wasn't planned, and my sermon looks very different than it was supposed to, I'm going to share with you what happened when these guys, and myself included, went through a little bit of a trial, and kind of connected this with James. And you'll see that pain, and we always think of suffering like the worst case scenario, but I think there's more trials we go through that are trying us and testing us than those big things that we identify as the terrible sufferings of our lives. What about all the other ones? So let's read James, and then we'll we'll go through a whole three verses today and see how we can do. James chapter 1, verse 2, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The beginning of James' letter is very interesting. Last week I spent the whole time on one verse. Amazing, right? And he said, I'm a servant, and my name is James. I'm the bro of Jesus, although he doesn't say that there. Greetings. And then he goes right into, count it all joy when you're suffering. Typically in the beginning of New Testament letters, they're like, oh, we appreciate you. We're praying for you. We want this for you so much. And James is pretty much like, suck it up now. You've got trials. And I like that he begins that way because the reality of all of our lives is that what our relationship with God looks like. Because this whole book is about relationship with other people. How is your faith expressed in this world? In reality, our relationship with God, what that looks like, dictates our interactions with other people. And so he basically says, start with yourself. But we refuse to really look at ourselves. We refuse to test ourselves in any kind of real way because it's scary. We might see something we don't like. We probably know we're going to see something we don't like, and we're fearful of change. 
Now, James says here that it's when we face trials, not if we face trials. And we'll get to the joy part in a little bit. But he tells his audience that when you face trials, and the word trials here is a, is a word for, for multicolored. It's a Greek word that talks about like the variations of colors, and there's lots of different colors. In fact, it takes 16.5 million colors to express or project a color photo on your computer. 16.5 million. I was trying to name like you know more than 64, which is that box of crayons, and I couldn't. It's like puce, burnt sienna, you know, like those colors that you use in that no one ever uh, thinks of. 16.5 million is you know, crazy, but really there's an infinite number of colors, which means there's an infinite number of trials that we can experience. And we all have experienced different ones. These guys showed up at this retreat expecting something totally different. It was awesome. And I ne- we never told them what to expect, but it was going to be a trial. So they all show up, and it was two churches. The Seed Church is a church that we have done things with, and they're amazing. I love those guys. But the funny thing is, is that when you show up to the camp, these guys showed up and they didn't know what was going to happen. All they knew was a men's retreat and they're expecting these traditional things. And they all were divided into Damascus Road and the seed. And there was like a chasm between them. They were in this lodge. You could see they're kind of just looking at each other. And it was really weird. And then we decided to number them off. And they're like, what's going on? So we started numbering them off one to six. And then we threw them into groups. And then they opened up a little letter in the beginning and said, this is your group, your team, you'll be camping with, sleeping with, working with. And they're like, what? Because they're going expecting to be with their pals, the guys they know, the people that make them comfortable. And they're looking across at the guys, they're like, dude, that guy was a dork and I wasn't thinking I was going to work with him. Already have judged that guy, didn't know him. You're from the seed church. I don't even know who you guys are. Well, guys, some guys wanted to lie about their numbers. That's they were getting their numbers, like one, two, and they're looking out. Who else is a two? Who else is a two? Two, two. Sit down like a table four. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think I'm a four, guys. Like, well, you got too many. Well, we should probably recount now. You know, that's what they were trying to do. Pull a little stuff like that because they were uncomfortable. They want to sit and work with people they didn't know. And some guys, as soon as they found out at that stage, they wanted to leave. There were guys that were immediately rebelling. There were guys who were thinking about, what is this? You're going to make us sit and talk to one another, talk about our daddy wounds or something, and make us talk about our feelings? Where's the, the coffee and the grunting and the guy to come scream at me and give me a cup check and be done? What's going on here? And they were scared to death. They were guys angry. You set us up. You set us up. This is ridiculous. What's, they don't like to know. They're like, what's the schedule? We're not going to tell you the schedule. What do you mean you're not going to tell us the schedule? Because guys want to know what's coming. There was this fear that was being created because it was unorthodox. Then I got up and I began to tell them that this was going to be a different experience for them. This was going to be a little bit of a trying time for them. And in our lives, we experience, as I said, all kinds of different trials. In fact, our faith, our faith works itself out. It's supposed to work itself out in what I would describe as the meat grinder of life. It's not intended to be easy. We face all kinds of trials in the form of physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, uh, all kinds of different trials that we face. And the reality is that many of us have experienced great disappointment and failure of our faith in the midst of those trials. And so we don't like trials. Although they're supposed to, to build us up, they typically break us down and we collapse in the face of trials at times. And so we avoid trials altogether. 
if I had told these guys, and I had sent out emails before, like, here are all the reasons you're going to make up as to why you can't come to this camp. Not telling them what the camp was. And they did not want to be there, and they were justifying and creating reasons in their mind and making plans to get away. There were guys, literally, I talked to them going, I was figuring how I could slip out, and there was a second road I saw when I came in that I could drive out and disappear from. Because we don't like trials, and they knew it was going to be a trying time. They knew it was going to be something that was going to be maybe painful for them. They were going to be tested a little bit. But the fact is, our faith, to go back to faith, never grows unless we're tested. It never comes to maturity unless we are put in the fire. You might have a faith, but you don't get to that place where it's an unshakable conviction. That takes testing. But we'll never or rarely put ourselves into a test. And the funny thing is, James says it here, he says, you know. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces something. It's like, not that you know trials, like you've experienced trials, but you know that these things happen and that you've seen faith work out and you've seen things increase. And so these guys are in this experience and they they go into this fire, if you will. And sometimes when we go through trials, we begin to justify like, okay, this could probably be a good trial if I can predict what's going to happen. And we take... Sometimes a martyr's mentality like, well, I'm going to suffer, that this good will come. That's probably why. I know that this person is going to come to know Jesus because I'm suffering here. Or we think, well, this is how God is shaping me. Uh, And so I know. And because we know the good that's going to happen, we'll embrace it. Because we know and can see what's going to happen, we'll evaluate whether that's good or not, and we'll move forward. But the fact is that none of us know what God is doing to us. None of us know. He puts us in these trials. And oftentimes we judge whether or not the trial is good or bad. But we really don't know. We can't stand in judgment on God on what he's doing to us. It's like my son does this when when he's eating dinner, right? My sons are, uh, I've got like a picky son, a son that pretty much eats anything, and a daughter that eats everything, okay? So my picky son... Um, he pretty much will just go without dinner. He doesn't didn't, didn't bother him. So he say, well, you eat your dinner, that's, that's all we're offering you. We don't make like a hundred different things. He's like, all right, fine. So he'll just starve. I mean, he's fine with it. All right, you know, no big deal. My other son is the kind of, he's, not, he's a thinker, at least with dinner. He'll say, okay, well, you're not going to be able to have whatever treat we're having, ice cream. And he'll say, well, what is the treat? Like, well, what do you mean? It's like, I want to know what the treat is. And he wants to evaluate whether eating the beans is difficult. You know, I want to go through that trial to get to this glory over here. No, but it's not worth it. I'll just starve. Okay? And they make those decisions. And we do that with God all the time. We sit pretending that we know what's going to happen. And the funny thing is that the, the testing or the, the production in us is always outside of ourselves. We never talk about what God's doing here. But what if, through that trial, whatever it looks like, what if the purpose is to change you? Not, well, he's preparing me for something glorious. He's going to impact it. No, what if it's just to change and move you? 
to change your misperceptions about things, to change your attitude about things? What if he wants to alter you? What if he wants to break down those idols you have in your heart? And that's what it's about. Well, he wouldn't do that. Yes, he does. He tests your faith in the sense of purifying it. That's what a crucible is. It purifies gold. It purifies metals. And he burns to melt the stuff off that's not supposed to be there. So I can make a locket? No, for the purity of the gold, period. So, trials produce somethingness. And so these guys have this experience. And on Friday, they're in full-out rebellion. Because what I do is I sit up and I say, by the way, they find out actually the next morning... I pretty much just basically say, here's all the reasons you're going to want to leave tonight. Please fight that, blah, blah, blah. They get up the next morning. They're like, okay, they kind of get through the hump. Okay, what are we going to do? Waiting for the guy to come and talk to me. I have this new team, so I'm going to spend my time with these guys, sure. And the first envelope we give them is kick someone out of your team. That was more creative than that. It was more like walk the plank because it was a boat theme. And you see one of the boats they end up building back there. But they're like, what, what do you mean? And you had all these different kinds of teams. You had a team of engineers. The first night they created a name and an identity and all these things. You had a team of engineers. All engineers. It took them 45 minutes to come up with a name. They only had like 50 minutes to do the whole thing. Name, slogan, they had to make a flag, all this stuff. 45 minutes to come up with a name. When they got to the place to vote someone off, vote someone off it took them two minutes doing rock, paper, scissors. Like, what the? And the funny thing is that Friday night, you know what we told them? was like, yeah, you're going to have this experience. It's going to be amazing, and we're going to watch you. It's like, what? Yeah, there's 13 leaders. They're going to watch you and take notes. Don't talk to them. And they're like, what? What do you mean? And so we did. We sat there with our clipboard as they had these experiences, as they introduced themselves to each other, as they decided who to kick out and how. Writing what they did. Why? As they sat in that trial, there's stuff that happens, the interactions that happen, there's things revealed about their hearts, for better or for worse, that we don't see. We get so blind to our own blindness and we behave in such ways and so we're doing it. And they're hating our guts. They believe that we, just being mean, oh, you guys like this, don't you? And they make little comments. And after a while, they might forget that we're there, but we're taking notes. I mean, like writing down at 904, you said this. And during the week, as we're going through this process, we tell them they're going to build a boat together. And they're like, a boat? Yeah, a boat. A cardboard boat. Like, Are you serious? Yeah, okay. So they get together, and they start doing this process. And we have times we sit down and reflect, and we go, you know, when you said um, this to, to John over here, you notice how he shut down? I didn't say that. Actually, no, at 924, you said, and I quote, we read it, and it's like, Suddenly the guy has revealed something about himself that he never saw. And he realizes he is in the fire. And he has to decide what he's going to do with that as he burns. Right? And it's like glorious to see. And we're not smiling. We're very deadpan, very serious. James says something really interesting here. And the fact is that God doesn't test us so that we'll fail. There's so many times we, we get tests from God and trials from God, and we're like, why do you hate me? I mean, if anybody could say that, Job probably could, right? Why do you hate me so much? Why are you making this so hard? 
But the fact remains that God puts us not to break us, but to build us up. Although the kids, when I, when I was in, in teaching high school, they thought I was just the meanest son of a gun. How dare you do these? I mean, there were so many things in conflict I put in there. It was ridiculous. There was one time I got together. This is hilarious. I had all these kids in these groups, and there were seven groups. And it was like the first day they came together. And I had an R2-D2 puzzle. Big Star Wars fan. Huge Star Wars fan. It was one of those 3D puzzles, like, you know, a thousand pieces. And in reality, it started with, I really want to put this puzzle together, but I don't want to put this puzzle together. So, brilliant. What a school project, right? So I come in, box is wrapped up, and I said, okay, sit down in your groups. So classes are 50 minutes, 55 minutes, something like that. I open the box up, and it's a bag of pieces. It looks like the most ridiculous puzzle you could possibly imagine. 3D, okay? So it's not like 2D here. It's huge. I take piles of pieces, and I, you know, put them all in there. I say, like, all right, you will either pass or fail this. They hear that, they're like, what do you mean? It's like, you're either going to get 100% or 0%. So the 4.0 kids are like, you know, filling their shorts at this point. Like, oh, I'm going to get a bad grade. So I give them one kid instructions. I said, you are the only one with instructions, not part of a group. You can go to all the groups. None of you can leave your tables. I said, and there's one other rule, like one person could exchange pieces. So the first 20 minutes in a 55-minute class, chaos, anger. They're so mad. I hate you. Why would you have us do this? I'm just like, I'm not smiling. I'm just, you know, writing something down. And at 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, they finally clicked. It took one or two kids and a leader to go, okay, wait a second. What if we did this? And suddenly they created a system of how to put things together and how to use the instructions. And within 55 minutes, they put together that puzzle. It was like, boom. It was like bell rang, last piece. Bing. I was like, and I was like, yeah, well done. But the inside, I'm like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> I could not. And that was one of the moments where we realized, holy cow, what are these kids capable of by putting them in the fire a little bit? My intent was not to destroy them. My intent was not to fail them, although kids thought I would give them Fs. I'd give, I gave so many Fs, not F on a final grade, but F in a project. And my intent was to push them forward as they got something they maybe had never received. It was never to break them. I wanted them to succeed so much. But oftentimes God gives us these tests and we really believe that he wants us to fail. And that's not the truth. That's a lie. And so as a result, anything that gets difficult or uncomfortable, like this men's retreat, we retreat from. There were guys that wanted to leave. There were guys that made all kinds of justifications. Why Why would I ever build a boat with these guys? This is stupid. I had one guy say, I've got a psychology degree. I know what you guys are doing. This is not the way to accomplish this. Getting angry, right? At one point, we evaluated them on the, uh, the level of community. We, we said, okay, you evaluate on how well you're doing as a team, and I want you to evaluate yourself on how well you're doing as a community. Those are different. You can function really well and not know anyone at all. By the time we got halfway to Saturday, one group didn't know each other's names. There's only six guys. But they were functioning really well. It was the engineer group. Okay? They didn't know who each other were. But they graded each other, and then we gave them a grade. And we gave them a super low grade. On purpose. Okay? We didn't have a rubric. It wasn't like we were going, well, this, this was like, you know, let's just give them, like, out of 100, like 20. And they're like, we're like 94. We're doing really good. 20. And we go, discuss why there's this discrepancy. And they were pissed. Are you kidding me? We're not a 20. 
Why are we at 20? I want to know. And that guy goes like, yeah, I want to know why. The funny thing is, if you would have given them a 95, they never would have questioned your expertise. They never would have said, well, I don't agree. 95, that's a little high for us. No. It was because it made them uncomfortable. It was because it's something they didn't want to hear. And so we put them in this trial and was to build them and grow them, although they didn't think it at the time. And the reality is that James says, let steadfastness, this is what trials produce, steadfastness. And that's not like passing and get hit in the face and go, oh, yeah, that's wonderful, thanks. Oh, It's not like that. Steadfastness, that fortitude, that stick to itness, that faith that is constant in the middle of the storm. It takes testing and weathering to get that place. But James says, let steadfastness have its full effect, as if you can not allow it to. You have some level of control to stop climbing the mountain halfway. He says, let steadfastness have control. And so these guys, to the glory of God, decided to stay at the camp. They could have left at any time. They could have decided not to build a boat and go, this is dumb. And some did and retreated kind of emotionally. But most stayed, and they stayed in the fire, and I think it was glorious for them. And I don't know how many of you guys have seen Biggest Loser, okay? I'm a closet Biggest Loser fan, but I just came out, and I'm a, kind of like American Idol too, but okay, we'll leave it there. Biggest Loser is an amazing show. And we like, people go, that's a show about fat people? No, it's not about that. It's about people being changed. It's an amazing show. So we, we watch this show as a family. It's like the one show we watch. I know it's like, that's kind of weird. But there's things happening. And so this year we watch it. just started last week. And we're watching, I actually watched it by myself. And I'm writing this trial thing, right? Watching Biggest Loser. I'm the kind of person that needs white noise. So like, I watch TV when I'm doing anything. Like even studying the Bible. It's just, it's weird. So I like it. Watching Biggest Loser, and every person, I mean, these are like 400, 500-pound people, right? They're just very, very large, very unhealthy, and they each have their own story as to why that's happened. And some it's, you know, they've been abused, and others, and so there's this one lady on there, amazing story. And I find myself, I'm getting older, I'm crying a lot more, okay? And I have to fight it because I'm just a man, and that's stupid, but I do because I'm scared to cry, I guess. But the reality is that... Um, what happened was this lady started sharing her story. And she was a young woman. She was only uh, late 20s, I think, uh, maybe early 30s. And uh, she talked a story about um, her husband. And she had a nine-year-old daughter and a two-week-old son. And all of them were killed in one accident uh, like a year prior to the show. Everything she loved was taken away in a moment from someone driving 100 miles an hour and killed the van that she says I was supposed to be in, but I wasn't. Takes away her two-week-old son, her nine-year-old daughter, and her husband. And I was, you know, I'm just sitting there crying as I'm writing about trials, thinking my life is so stinking easy. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I have not experienced a trial like that. But to believe for a moment that that's out of God's control, I think is evil and wrong. So she started telling her story, and she says something that was amazing to me. Everyone's crying now as they're listening to her story, because some people are like, yeah, I just was always big as a little kid, and these stories you kind of like compare to this, like nothing. And they're all bawling, and she says, but you know what? She said the easiest thing to do and to have done would be to die 
the hardest thing to do is for me to get up every day and to know that there's some greater purpose for all this and to choose to live in that. He's like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine deciding to walk into the fire and being, how easy it would be to give up, how easy it would be to surrender. And there's so many of us that in the midst of that trial, we give in really easy. And he says, let steadfastness, let that trial have its full effect because you can prevent it from doing so. Romans 5 says it this way, that sufferings can produce endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We should never be surprised that trials come. Peter talks about that. He says it should not be a surprise to you that they come, and we make choices to stay in it and to grow from it. And James says that the intent is to make us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That sounds good, but it also sounds bad if you really think about it. Because if the goal is to be perfect, and that's never going to happen in this world, that means that our life is a constant uphill battle. And we don't like that. We think it should be comfortable, it should be easy, it should be downhill, right? I'm, on the, I'm retired, I'm going downhill. There's a new trial coming. It's constantly uphill. It's just a matter of... Not if trials come, but when and what color is the new color of the month. That's the reality. But what happened with these guys is they stayed in this trial and they had an amazing experience. I think. I really don't know, I guess. But they put these boats together and uh, continued to work throughout the day, arguing getting along, joking, as they began to process what was going on the whole time. And the last part, also we'll go back to the first part of James, where in the midst of the trial, he says, count it all joy, which is one of the most abused, I think, pieces of Scripture in the Bible. Because what happens sometimes is people have experiences, and you have people, I think maybe well-intentioned, but perhaps not, who say stuff like, take joy that this happened to you. You know, it's praise Jesus that you're suffering like this. And I think if I would have said that to the guys on Friday night, they would have, you know, crucified me right there. Like, hey guys, this is going to be fun. I didn't tell them, I said, this is going to be hard and you're going to hate it and you're going to want to run away now. Great. And if I would have told them before the retreat what it was going to be like, I don't think joy is the word I would have used. And the thing about it is that James is not saying that we're not to be emotional or painful or have sadness. He allows that. Remember when Jesus, his friend Lazarus dies, and he shows up and the family is crying. He doesn't stand up and say, or arrive and go, hey, be joyful. God's in control. I'm going to raise him from the dead in a couple minutes. Relax. He doesn't say that. He comes and he sits in the emotion with them. And he puts his arm around them and he weeps with them. And he sits there and allows people to be angry and allows people to be upset, of which we did. It's okay. But he also says, count it all joy. Count it. It's a decision. It's not just something that happens. It's a decision to stay in the trial. It's a decision to stop and think and make a judgment about the joy that's possible. 
Not the trial itself. James is not some kind of masochist like, hey, enjoy it. Isn't this great? It's to say what is beyond the moment. What's beyond the trial. The reality is that God wants us to be governed by his word like this and not governed by what we see as the truth of experience. Experiences are supposed to be governed by God's truth, but we allow circumstances to overwhelm us. And the crazy thing is that we have a limited, imperfect, incomplete, restricted, inadequate, finite, narrow, and partial point of view where we see trials as these random accidents, as the way things shouldn't be going. But in fact, the reality is that's the way God moves us forward. It's that God pushes us through those to maturity. Now, think about this. Think about the athlete. I don't have to get in shape because I don't have like a race coming up. But if I was going to run a marathon, which I think anyone who does is psycho, but they enjoy. But if I was going to run a marathon, I would have to run a lot. Okay? And that would be painful for me to do. Why? Here you go. This is why. Okay? This couldn't look the same. And I, my lungs would get that burning blood taste as I'm trying to get trained right. It would be painful. But I'm not going, hey, I can't wait to run 10 miles a day and do those kind of things so that I can run 26 point whatever miles as a marathon. It's the joy beyond. It's the feeling of accomplishment that I'm focused on, not the moment. It's what's going to happen. It's like the farmer planting a field, right? He's not looking like, hey, I, I never wanted to be a farmer. It looks like hard work. It's not like he's going through the fields with his seeds like, hey, this is going, you know, and like excited, right? He's planting the seeds because he's looking at the harvest. The work is hard. It's hard to go through that. It is a trial, but he sees the harvest. Or think about having a baby, right? My bride, we've had three kids. We, she's had three kids. I was there. Well, I passed out partially for one because it was really hot. Someone turned the heat up. She's like, push, right on top of her in the middle of a contraction. Embarrassing, yes. I ended that second son's birth sipping a Starbucks coffee, eating a muffin, going, good job, honey, as the doctor said, stay over there. Way to go, right? But the first son we had was an amazing experience. I mean, the second one was half amazing, but the, the first one was incredible. But my wife made noises that I have never heard her make before or, or since. She yelled like a man. She was just like, holy cow, who is this? And accomplished something that was incredible and looked like it hurt a little bit. And the fact is that she did not enjoy that. Crazily, she forgets that. And we had two more kids, right? But she is, when, when she, you know, finds out she's pregnant, she doesn't go, Oh, I can't wait nine months from now on the day of the birth. That's going to be such a joy. That's not her thought. The thought is beyond that. The thought is the child. The beauty of the child. The joy of the child. It's not the trial that's going to be that nine-month period with a crescendo at the end. Right? That's not like, woo! But she sees the joy beyond that. And these guys... There's no way you could tell them, guys, it's going to, just trust me. We didn't say that. There's no point. But here's what happened. 
we go up, the leaders go up, and, and they were just about, before we left, it was about 4 o'clock, and we left, and we came down. Uh, I, before we left, the boats were, no, no boats were together. There's seven teams, seven boats. And I was like, there's no way. There's no way it's going to happen. And we go up, come back down, and all the boats are together. And I couldn't believe it. I went to, to Dave. Dave is this guy who, he's a Microsoft exec, and he's the guy that designed the boats, and he was out there with us. And I went directly to him. I said, what happened? He's like, I don't believe it. They put together these boats. And he was so impressed and blown away that they'd done this. Typically, someone buys the book and sends them a picture four months later after they stumble their way through, and these guys put it together in hours. And next thing you know, you see these guys because they were going to race the boats. And the boats weren't like, hey, I did the boat. The boats are all colored up. One team had put GC20, which was Gospel Community 20, which was their grade. They pasted it in red paint. And they're like, yeah. You're like, yeah, you know. <laughs> they had flags come in. They had signed them all. I mean, they had put time and energy and blood and sweat and tears into these things. And they're all moving them out, carrying them down with their flags and suddenly it gone from these guys going, well, I'm a, I got a psychology degree, and I think you know what you're doing, and this is ridiculous, and you guys set us up to, yeah, woo! There was this pride, there was this energy, there was a joy of accomplishment, of unity, that they didn't plan on, and it happened. I mean, they're guys, it was like junior high kids. They had their boats there, they're like flexing, and they got their oars, and they're just like taking pictures, and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. And we're just sitting there laughing. The leaders are laughing out of the joy of what they've experienced and what other things that, you know, beyond just the boat that had happened, going, this is crazy. And then that they launched and they all floated. They all worked. And they're like, I mean, these guys were rowing in this race and they looked mean. I mean, they wanted to win. And there was a joy that was happening, although five of the seven boats sunk. It was a joy. Right? The two teams that succeeded were the engineer teams. They probably did it perfectly, right? It took them the longest. But there was a joy that it experienced. And then for me personally, and I'll, I'll show you a little bit of my heart, there was a joy that, that I experienced. And the funny thing is that as the leaders went up at 4 o'clock, and we got together as a group of 13, and we'd been taking notes on guys, been speaking to guys and all stuff. Meanwhile, there were guys watching us. And we really didn't know that they were. And they took a moment to speak to us. And uh, it was one of the most powerful moments in my life in the last couple years that I've ever experienced as a guy took the time in the midst of what was a trial that I didn't even know was going on. Because I'll be real honest with you, as the week came to an end, I had put hours and hours and hours in preparing as the last thing I wanted to do last week. I did not want to go to the retreat. I did not want to sit and take notes on guys. I wanted to sit, make bodily noises, drink coffee, and play football. But I was looking for the joy beyond that. As we sat down, and this guy who came with us began to speak into us. And he said some things to me that I won't share because they are personal, but they broke me. They broke me in ways that uh, I can't even put into words. As he spoke hope into me in the midst of this trial, and he pulled some stuff out of me that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not trying to get a cycle babble. He didn't say that much. It was just like, 
good night. In that moment, I could care less if anyone had any experience at that thing. I had an amazing experience. But then to go down and see the joy that occurred in that moment was incredible. And as you go back, we had guys sit down and reflect. And you have guys speaking into one another's souls. Unlike in the first night where they're like, yeah, my name is Bob and I'm this. Guys saying, man, I love you and you're a leader. And this trial experience had changed many of them. And I'm sure not all of them had that kind of experience, but a lot of them did. And they, if they wouldn't have given a chance, if they would have said, well, I, I need to know how God is working. I need to be able to predict how he's going to shape me. I need to understand none of that occurred. No one expected what happened, I think. Because the joy doesn't come in predicting and understanding and even knowing what's going on. The joy comes in the fact that God is bigger and better and more powerful than any possible circumstance you could have. And if you're not a Christian, if you do not believe that Jesus is a real person, that he really died as your substitute on a cross for the sins that you did really commit, and you don't really believe that he rose from the dead to give you new life, It makes sense that you flee from every trial that makes you uncomfortable, that is difficult, to find joy outside of it. That makes sense to me. Because all you have to hope in is this world. And so you escape the trials because that's that's the bad parts of the world and try to find joy in the other parts of the world. And you sit in judgment on God as bad or not powerful because he couldn't stop these things. That makes sense to me. Because you have no hope outside of this world. But, as James addresses, if you are a Christian, if you are someone that claims Jesus as Lord, as God, as substitute for your sins, as your Savior, when all the emotions have passed that you have the permission to sit in, when all of that is gone, where are you? Because James is not talking about a faith that's extraordinary. He's not talking about, well, if you're a super Christian, here's how you exist. He's talking about the ordinary, Joe Blow, average Christian and how they face trials. Those who have authentic, genuine faith face trials, choose to face trials this way and are empowered by God to get through them. That's ordinary faith, not extraordinary faith. But most of us, many of us, are overwhelmed by our trials and think it's strange when Peter says, it's not. It's not. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you, knew, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. James is trying to get us to think radically different about trials, which is difficult and unusual for us. But we must Make that decision. Paul says, count it. Just as James says, he says, I count all things, everything as rubbish, as garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. And so even though trials 
come. They do not shake us. They do not destroy us because we know without a shadow of a doubt that our Master has gone before us first and experienced the same thing. This is the crazy, crazy thing is that a lot of us say, I want to live like Jesus. And the question for you, if you claim to be a Christian, is do you really want a life like Jesus? Because a life like Jesus has trials all the way to the end. When he was born, they tried to murder him. And they did murder him when he died. It's a life of trial. It's a life of suffering. But it's also a life of this. And I'll close with this, Hebrews 12. says, let us lay aside, let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross not because he thought, man, this is going to be fantastic to suffer. Jesus is the one in the midst of the garden who prayed, if it is possible, let it not be this way, but your will be done. And he said and sat in the trial for the joy that he saw beyond the trial. And the reality is that joy is you and me of restoring us to completeness, of him being risen to authority again. And so... If you, and a lot of us are experiencing trials. A lot of us experience financial trials. Some have experienced physical trials. Some have emotional trials. Some have spiritual trials. There are multicolored trials, I understand. And all I'm trying to, to convey to you is don't run from the trial. God has you where you're at. He is holding you where you're at. And He is shaping you in this moment, your faith your heart, revealing things to you that he might make you more like Jesus. And we celebrate the fact that our aim is to look like Jesus by taking communion every Sunday, whereas we take the bread and declare that we are more sinful and broken than we'll ever admit, but that God loves us knowing all of that more than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father God, I give you praise and glory for the trials you bring in our life. For the huge, big, gigantic ones that shake us to the core. And to the little ones that we seem insignificant. From those of us who have experienced abuse and addiction and pains that are indescribable. To the little irritating daily grinds of life, of being a parent and being at a job. Lord, let us embrace these trials as the place where You are shaping us and moving us forward. Let us not run from them to escape, to find joy, but to experience the joy of being conformed to the image of Your Son in the midst of trials. I pray, God, that our circumstances will not overwhelm us that the horizontal world will not dictate the way things are, Father, but we will be a people of faith who walk by faith and not by sight. Empower us to do that. Increase our unbelief, Father. 
Let our unbelief be gone and increase our faith in you as bigger than our circumstances. All glory to your Son, Jesus. Amen.